Welcome to the Hills. My name is Rick. I'm the senior teaching minister here. If you're in person in North Richland Hills, Keller, or uh, West Fort Worth, or if you're watching online, thank you for being with us. I'm starting a new series today called Faith Worth Remembering that I think will be a huge blessing to you. But first, I want to do a quick recap of the last two weeks when we recast our vision as a church. We call it Ask for Nations and Generations. We have a website, nationsandgenerations.org, where you can look at the goals that God has put before us as a church to pursue for the next five years. And as you've heard, we're going to roll out a prayer plan next Sunday for 40 days to pray over this vision. Because we're asking God for some big things. Perhaps one of the biggest is to see 25 families decide in the next five years they will foster at our church. In the first year, five families have risen up to go through the process of being licensed to be foster families. And just recently, our third family got a placement. So I want to show you this picture. Uh, these two precious children have joined little Ella Simons. Uh, you notice they're working their NG shirts. Uh, Bobby and Stephanie Simons came to our vision night last year. They felt, felt impressed upon by the Lord to become foster parents. So they've gone through the process. They've been licensed. They've got their two precious kids that they're a blessing right now. And only God could do this. So last Sunday, you might recall, I had people stand up and huddle and pray for kids by name. So they turn around and they meet Harry and Wanda Brewer, who they had never met. They did not know that the Brewers have fostered 40 children the last 10 years, and they got to pray together. Only God could have orchestrated that kind of meeting. So we continue to pray for all of our goals, and especially for our foster families. Thank you for doing that. Now, I want to show you three more pictures in just a moment. And before I do, I need to say something. I've tried to be very faithful as a pastor, not to misuse this platform to always talk about my family. In fact, most of you don't even know that in the last several years, two of my children got married because I never said a word. Well, I'm breaking the rule because you only become a grandfather for the first time, one time. And so last Wednesday morning, I became a grandfather. So please welcome Sadie James Hamilton. And I know what you're all thinking because I can read your mind. She is the absolutely most precious, beautiful baby I've ever seen. Well, of course she is. You're absolutely right. In the next picture, you'll see my daughter, Morgan. Uh, Morgan had a tough uh, time. She had 35 hours of labor followed by a difficult C-section. Let me just say it. Women are tougher than men, okay? <laughs> Praise God for the ladies. And then finally, you see my wife and I getting to hold precious Sadie for the very first time. Now, all the ladies are looking at my face and saying, she is going to have him tied around her little finger. Not going to, she already does. I walked up to her when I met her. I put out my little finger. She grabbed it, and we made a pact. From now on, lady, you are my boss, and I do whatever you want, okay? And all of the men are looking at Jamie's face, and they're thinking the same thing. Preacher is about to be broke. You are so right. I had no idea how many bows you could buy on a phone on the way to a hospital. And I couldn't be more thrilled. Now, I cannot help in view of the week I've just had, but think about generational impact. I take seriously my responsibility as a grandfather to spoil my granddaughter. I take even more 
seriously my responsibility to disciple my granddaughter. I know that I will have many precious moments with her. Here's what else I know. If she lives to live a long life, and I hope she does, she will live most of her life not with moments with me, but with memories of me. That's not a sad statement. That's the truth. I'll be with Jesus, and she will live with memories of me. So the question is, what kind of memories do I want her to have? I hope she will remember most that her grandfather was a true believer. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11 for seven weeks, a faith worth remembering. The book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who were experiencing struggle and persecution for accepting Jesus as Messiah. And the writer is attempting to encourage them to remain faithful. So he goes back into their history in chapter 11 and pulls out some of their heroes. And he starts the chapter like this. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. So the first thing we learn about true faith is it doesn't depend on sight. It's having a confidence in something you cannot actually see. Maybe you can't see it because it's already happened. For example, I absolutely believe in the resurrection of Jesus, that the evidence for it is powerful, and yet I was not an eyewitness to his resurrection. I believe in something I did not see. I absolutely believe Jesus is going to return again. But I I can't believe it because I've seen it. It hasn't happened yet. So maybe you have faith in something you can't see because it's already happened or it hadn't happened yet. Or maybe it's because it exists in the unseen world, which I believe is very, very real. Now, the author knows what I just said sounds kind of mysterious and esoteric. Faith is believing in something you can't see. So he says, here's the deal. I'm going to explain what I'm talking about by sharing stories of faith. And so 21 times in Hebrews 11, he's going to use the expression by faith and tell a story because this is big. Real faith is more than a statement. Real faith always produces a story. Look again at verse 2. Faith is the reason we remember great people who lived in the past. Their life created a story worth retelling. In fact, here's the foundation for the whole series in one sentence. Lived faith is relived faith. When you actually live your faith, people talk about it long after you are gone. Now, as we work through Hebrews 11, we're going to realize these heroes weren't perfect people. I mean, Noah got drunk, Abraham lied, Moses killed a man, David was the Bible's most famous adulterer. These are stories of flawed people, but they had one thing in common. They didn't just believe in God, they believed 
God. You know there's a difference. You can believe in God, and it doesn't affect your life at all. But these people believed God. And here's how you know. Faith is a noun. But when you live a faith worth remembering, there's going to be verbs attached to the noun. So you read in Hebrews chapter 11, and it says that Abel brought, and Noah built, and Abraham offered, and Jacob blessed, and Moses kept, and Israel passed through, and Rahab welcomed. They lived faith. And the consequence was a story worth telling and retelling. They believed the God they believed in. Because, and here's the first thing we're going to learn about faith in this series. Faith worth remembering is God confident. Look again at verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. A.W. Tozer said, the most important thing about a man is what comes into his mind when he thinks about God. And I agree. The most important thing about you is what you think when you think about God. Because what you think about God is forming you. And shaping who you are becoming. And so here's what the writer says. Faith that pleases God has two things come immediately into the mind when you think about God. And here's the first thing. Faith reveals confidence in God's realness. Faith that pleases God believes that he exists. That the foundation of faith is in the beginning, God. Okay, for the next several minutes, we're going to wade into some deep water. So hang with me. See, I don't believe faith is anti-intellectual. I did not turn off my brain so I could be a Christian. I love God with all my heart and with all my mind. Faith is not anti-intellectual, but we must acknowledge that if God exists, then he is beyond finite intellect. Let me put it this way. If God exists, then he is uncaused. He just is. His name might even be I am. Okay? How do we study anything? What is the job of science? To examine causes. But if God exists, he is uncaused, which means you can't explain God like we explain everything else. Now, this causes some people to reject the idea of God because God won't play by our rules. That might be where some of you are listening to me right now. You gave up on the whole idea of God. So let me be bold enough to challenge you to be intellectually honest enough to admit that when you gave up on God, what else did you give up on? For example, if we're just highly evolved lumps of carbon, then you need to give up on this idea that there's a moral standard everyone should observe. 
You need to give up on longing for justice because there is no standard. Secularism can tell you what is. It cannot tell you what ought to be. Now, you can have what you think are moral feelings or thoughts or behaviors according to your definition. But you have no right to decide that what is right for you is right for anybody else. Survival of the fittest is the only rule of the universe. You give up on justice if you give up on the notion of God. And if we're just random cosmic accidents, then the thought that any of our lives has purpose or meaning is completely irrational. For your life to have meaning, your life has to make a difference. But here's the thing. If all there is is matter, none of us matter. The universe could care less that you're here. It will care even less when you are gone. That is not being cynical. That is a reasonable deduction if there is no God. And since we're being honest, let's take one more step. Let's also acknowledge that denying the existence of God is also a leap of faith. You cannot empirically prove that a God does not exist. You can only assume so based on your biases. It's a faith position to contend that non-existence produced existence, that non-life produced life, that non-order somehow became order. See, every assumption about origins wades into the realm of faith. But the scriptures insist there's a good reason to affirm the God assumption is the most reasonable of all. Creation. Verse 3, by faith we understand the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Now again, that's an example of believing something you weren't there to see. None of us saw God create the world. But what we do see in creation is design and order. And this is why hundreds of thousands of brilliant scientists believe in God. Their science didn't lead them from faith, but it led them to faith. Because you have to account for what you see in the created order. You'll recognize the picture of Albert Einstein, probably the most brilliant mind this nation has ever produced. Right before his 50th birthday, he was asked if he believed in God. Here's what he said. I'm not an atheist. The problem involved is too vast for our limited minds. We are in the position of a little child entering a huge library filled with books in many languages. The child knows someone must have written those books. He does not know how. He does not understand the languages in which they are written. The child dimly suspects a mysterious order in the arrangement of the books, but doesn't know what it is. That, it seems to me, is the attitude of even the most intelligent human being toward God. We see 
the universe marvelously arranged and obeyed certain laws, but only dimly understand these laws. I appreciate his intellectual integrity. To be fair, what Einstein did not say is the God of the Judeo-Christian tradition is the God. He certainly did not say Jesus Christ is his son. Here's what he did say. I'm a scientist. I read the universe. And when I read the universe, reason demands that I believe there's an author. God is not asking human beings to believe in him in spite of a total absence of evidence. God is not saying, you must just take a leap of faith in the dark. No, God is saying, take a leap of faith in view of all the light I have provided in my creation. And so Paul could say in Romans 1, they know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Creation gives powerful testimony that the universe has a maker. And that the maker is wise and powerful. But faith that pleases God goes past that. It goes past just believing God is real. Look at the rest of that sentence. Verse 6. Anyone who comes to God must believe that he's real and that he rewards those who truly want to find him. And so faith worth remembering is not just confident in God's realness, but confidence in God's goodness. See, it would bring no comfort to me to believe God is real if he wasn't good. Now that's how the gods of the ancient peoples, the Canaanites and the Babylonians and the Greeks and Romans behaved. They had gods. They had creation stories. But their gods were jerks. They were capricious and self-absorbed and mean. And the job of religion was to appease them so that they would stay off your back and not hassle you. This is not the narrative of the Judeo-Christian tradition. This is not how the Bible depicts God. I mean, from the very start of the Bible, the God of the Jews and the Christians is good. Consistently, thoroughly good. He never has a hard time being good. The psalmist says, How great is your goodness that you've stored up for those who fear you, that you've given to those who trust you. You do this for all to see. The psalmist says, God is good in a way you can see. He gives evidence of his goodness. One example, again, is his creation. It has a that's good stamp on it. Everything God made, he would say, that's good. Not just because it's beautiful, which it is, but because it made its purpose. God was creating a planet ideally suited for his children to thrive on. It's good. And then there's God's recreation work. 
what he does in lives of people like you and me, how he takes flawed sinners and he molds us into the image of Christ. And, and right now I'm talking to hundreds of people that could give a testimony. I know what I used to be. I know where I was and I know where I am today and I know who I'm becoming today because God found me and God is good. God is doing a good work in me. In fact, Paul says you are God's masterpiece that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day that the Lord Jesus Christ returns. So we see God's goodness in creation. We see God's goodness in our neighbor. And then we see the goodness of God in the way he works in circumstances. Again, almost everyone listening to me right now could tell me about a season of your life that was hard. You did not want to go through it. You don't want to go through it again. But you can look back and you can say, but God was good and brought me through. And the Bible says, God works for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. So this is our God. He can bring good out of nothing like the universe. He can bring good out of sinners like you and me. He can even bring good out of evil. Isn't the cross the proof of that? God brought good out of the darkest moment in human history. No one does good like God. But confident faith in God's goodness must affirm one more thing. God is pleased with faith that believes that he's real and that he rewards those who want to find him. God is good because he does not play hide and seek from people that want to find him. He rewards their faith. Again, the psalmist, you, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Call out to God and he will respond. Several years ago in Christianity Today, I read a testimony of a Jewish novelist named Andrew Clavin. At 13, he had his bar mitzvah. He literally got thousands of dollars of gifts at this significant moment in his uh, life. And at first, he enjoyed them, and then he began to resent them, and here's why. He knew faith in his family was a sham. They didn't believe in God. They never talked about God. They never prayed to God. They never read Torah. He took all those gifts, and he threw them in the trash and declared, I'm an atheist. And that's how he lived the next 35 years of his life. Life, just one problem. When you throw God in the trash, you throw some other things in the trash that you missed, like justice and purpose. And he was especially convicted by the kindness he saw from Christian people in his life. Where does that come from? So he's a novelist. He loves books and stories. He's reading, and a character right before bedtime says a prayer. He says, well, I can try that. So he prays a prayer, late 40s. Here's the prayer he prayed. Thank you, God. And he went to sleep. And he woke up the next morning and he said, I was filled with a joy I could not explain. It wasn't from within me. It was above me. It was, it was outside of me, but it was real. 
And so I prayed the second prayer I've ever prayed. God, how do I show you I'm grateful for what you've done? And he heard a voice. Now, again, this guy has lived 35 years as an atheist. He doesn't hear voices, but he heard a voice. And the voice he heard said, now you should get baptized. What? He said, all my adult life, I've cared about sex, politics, and malt liquor. And get baptized means not only is there a God, but he's the God whose son is named Jesus. So he goes to a church, which he's never done, and gets baptized. And says, I can't explain it. But I became a different person. So much so in one week, my wife says, what's happened to you? And you've been following Jesus ever since. Now, I tell a story like that, and somebody's out there thinking, oh, yeah, that's weird. No, not really. There are thousands and millions of stories like that all over the world. Right now, we support missionaries in countries where it's illegal to be a Christian, and people are finding Jesus because they're having dreams and they're having visions. God is good, and he reveals himself to people that are really trying to find him. And right now, I'm talking to somebody that needs to put Hebrews 11.6 to the test. Maybe you're at one of our campuses. Maybe you're watching me online. Or maybe you're listening to a podcast five months from now. And you're wondering if God is real. Well, why don't you ask him to reveal himself? Seriously. Don't play games. Don't manipulate. God doesn't bargain. But why don't you say, God, I want to know. And I'm in. If you reveal yourself to me and your realness to me, I am all in. And see what happens. Because the Bible says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I believe what will happen is a story worth retelling. It pleases God to reward faith. Because lived faith pleases God. Think about it. (laughs) What are we going to offer God? He's uncaused. You can't bring God anything he needs. You certainly can't bring him your perfect obedience. So what could you give God that would make him happy? God says, I'll tell you. Some confident trust that I'm real and I'm good. That would make me happy. Believing I'm real and that I'm good and living like you believe that, that would make me really happy. What we can offer God is our clear perception of what we can't see but know is true. One of my favorite hymns is Blessed Assurance, written by Fanny Crosby. You know that she was blinded at six weeks old by a mistake of a doctor. And so many of her hymns talk about seeing. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight, watching and waiting, looking above. She could see by faith what she could not see by sight. And when you live like that and you believe the God you believe in, you live a life worth remembering. And here's the cool thing. 
Faith that pleases our Father blesses our children. That's the whole point of Hebrews 11. Live the kind of life that somebody's going to talk about long after you're gone. I want my children and my grandchildren and beyond to be encouraged and inspired and emboldened by the memories of my lived faith. I was. I'm still being blessed by the memory of my father's, my mother's father. He did not become a Christian until he was 56 years old. He went from the hospital to the church to get baptized. And he walked away from decades of alcoholism when he found Jesus. I'm still living off the fuel of the memory of my father's mother, after whom my daughter's named. Spiritually single almost all her life, taking two boys to church, reading her Bible, and saying her prayers every day with a husband who did not walk faith with her. I wouldn't be standing here if it wasn't for her. I still see my dad in the paying bills, and the first check he wrote every week was his tithe to his church before he would pay another bill. I still see my mom in that hospital bed, and I hold her hand, and I tell her that she's got cancer, and it's going to be tough. And my mom says to me, either way, I win. My last memory of my wife's mother was in her living room, and she, at 80-something years old, is praying out loud over every one of her kids, blessing them by name. And thanking God for being good to her family. I will tell my granddaughter those stories. So that she can tell her grandchildren those stories. And I hope she will tell some stories about me. You want to bless the next generation? It's not what we leave to them. It's what we leave in them. So what do you want to be remembered for? Because you can impact future generations for eternity. Lived faith is relived faith. And so you need to make some memories with God. You need to add some verbs to your faith. It will please God. It'll bless your kids. And you will be remembered. So I'm going to pray now over all of us at every campus online. But first, I want you to bow your head. I'm just going to give you 30 seconds. You ask the Holy Spirit to give you a verb. Seriously. Give me a verb that would help me live a better story. Ask right now. Thank you, God. Thank you for being the God that is a rewarder. I believe right now you're receiving all these prayers 
and you are pleased. We declare that you are real and that you are good. And that we want to live the kind of lives that make it clear that we don't just believe in God, we believe God. And so God, increase our faith. Help us live better stories. And let us have the joy of seeing the generations after us live faith too. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.